HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box and Clover, working together to provide restaurants with even more technology for a better hospitality experience. Visit getbento.com slash better to learn more. As most of our listeners know, we're also the founders and operators of Tillet, so we appreciate great style when it crosses our path. Our guest today, a longtime hospitality professional, had such style and still has when she first came into our showroom years ago. So we're doubly excited to welcome her now to the podcast to hear about our growing group of restaurants. So our guest today is Natalie of Nats on Bank and Nats of Bleecker, which recently opened. Natalie is a very seasoned hospitality operator and is the founder of Strange Bird Hospitality Group. She brings her fresh, whimsical, and as Alex mentioned, always stylish brand of hospitality to New York City, putting people over profits, which we'll talk about. She is a longtime friend of Tillit, as Alex also mentioned, so we're super excited to catch up. How are you, Nat? I am great. I am I'm glad that school is back in session for the kids and I can focus a little bit more on what I need to focus on at work. I know, right? And you're working very hard growing your restaurant group. So you have, um, you just opened a new location. Can you tell us a little bit about both Nats on Bank and Nats on Bleecker for our audience if they're not familiar? Of course. Uh, Nats on Bank opened uh, during COVID in June of 2021. I saw the space for the first time in December of 2020. So it was a very uncertain time. Um, but the space was just so incredible. The windows were boarded up and I walked in and it was one of those moments where you just feel like you could do something here. Um, it's four blocks from my daughter's school in Greenwich village and eight blocks from my house, which was very appealing during COVID as well. Uh, and I had just bought my partner out at that time and really wanted to focus on building a restaurant and a restaurant group where it was more focused on, um, people having a really good time and being able to break bread with one another and enjoying themselves instead of focusing on, you know, this, this detail over here, or this detail over here, or that you have to fit into a box, say you design like a French bistro, then you have to have French bistro food. So, you know, we didn't have many staff at the time. The Orchard Townhouse was operating throughout all of COVID. Uh, my daughter homeschooled at the Orchard Townhouse during the day, <laughs> uh, which was just so much fun. 
Um, so yeah. At least you have access to good food. I don't know. Uh, that is true. That is true. Um, and so I really, you know, it was, it was kind of me solo and I just got to design it however I wanted and build the restaurant that I wanted to go to that I felt like we were missing in New York, you know, that was something just really related to fun, but with still professional and fun service and a great atmosphere that wasn't going to break the bank, you know, that was going to be a good local neighborhood spot. Um, so we opened Nats on Bank and it was a great success. You know, I was here every day pre-opening with the doors open, talking to people in the neighborhood. I knew a lot of people in our neighborhood because it is also my neighborhood. Um, a lot of the moms live on my block. Uh, so, you know, we really started to identify what it was that the neighborhood needed. And the idea was we didn't want to bring a concept. You know, we didn't want to decide ahead of time. This is the concept that we wanted to build. It was we wanted to be in a neighborhood, find the location, then decide what the neighborhood needed and build the concept around that so that we would be providing that service to the community. Um, it was a huge success and it was super fun and very busy and people really responded to you know, the silliness and the whimsy and the colorfulness and the plates and the glasses and the food was also fun. And we decided, you know, very shortly after that, that I wanted to start looking for another location on the West Side, because that's what I'm really familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, to do another Nats, but that wouldn't be so seafood focused. Um, I had been reading a lot of historical cookbooks during the time, which I enjoy quite a bit. And I wanted to do uh, another Nats that was maybe even a little bit more out there in terms of design where people really wouldn't know what to expect walking in. But then I wanted to have this menu that was, you know, very like 1950s French inspired, but in a, in a whimsical way where it wouldn't alienate any of the guests in the neighborhood. Still a great burger, you know, some fun fondue. Um, so Nats was really just born out of wanting to create fun for the neighborhood where people could really have a good time and break bread together. And I feel like we've done a good job of that. Uh, people seem to have a really great time here. And so do I. <laughs> good. Well, if you're having fun, the guests are having fun. Isn't that, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. So, so tell us, so you, Nats on Bleaker is obviously still sort of Greenwich Village on the West side. And I was looking on the map, they're like less than a mile apart. So it sounds like this was by design. It was by design. We wanted to be able to walk back and forth. And just like any other neighborhoods in New York, um, they vary, vary, they vary quite a bit, just a few blocks away from one another. So it's a, it's, while we do have some crossover because we have a lot of loyal Nats on Bank regulars, it really is like we're, we're starting to identify a whole new clientele in that neighborhood um, that didn't even really know about Nats on Bank. And it's, it's very much a different vibe. And that's been really exciting to navigate, being able to walk 10 minutes between the restaurants and have them feel so different. What have you, so how did you know how, like, how were you like, okay, I'm going to make this vibe in this place and this vibe in that place and see what sticks? Like, did you take a different design philosophy? What was, what was the thought process there? Well, Nats on Bank is very small, um, mm -hmm. incredibly small. It's 980 square feet total. Oh my God. Um, that includes our tiny kitchen and our downstairs dishwasher that we don't have access to from inside the restaurant, only through a dumbwaiter. <laughs> uh, so that presented a unique challenge for sure. Um, but we also, it was a, you know, it was a second generation space, the Riddler, a wonderful champagne and oyster bar was here before COVID and they had done an incredible job of, of maximizing and designing the space really beautifully. So it was just cosmetic for me here and there was only so much I could do, you know, there's seven tables inside and 12 bar seats. So it's not, 
not so much, but it was, you know, changing the color scheme, adding um, a lot of really great lighting fixtures. Uh, Fortuny is a wonderful fabric company that I have, you know, that I'm very close with. We did a whole fabric wall. And the idea behind Nats on Bank was I wanted all of the artists that were a part of it um, to be people that I had a personal relationship with and connection with. Um, so because we were kind of limited in the scope, it was really exciting Nats on Bleecker because it was pretty much a raw space. It was formerly Junzi Kitchen, which was a, a fast, casual Chinese restaurant, you know, so it's steam tables and we had to completely renovate the entire inside. So I realized when I, when like the world was my oyster in terms of design, um, I, I kind of went a little a little nutty, um, and I hired a great a great design and build firm called Bolt, who after some months started to understand that I wanted them to go as crazy as possible. That when I said I needed these twelve colors, I meant these twelve colors, and you know when I wanted seventeen different patterns, like that's actually what we wanted to achieve. Um, and they did a really good job of of uh, collectively representing the the vision. But really, I mean, the whole the whole thing was I had a blank canvas there and I had never had a blank canvas before. I've been doing second generation restaurants for so long um, and that was incredibly exciting. And with Nat's Mountain House opening next year, it is also a blank canvas. And I am having a lot of fun designing that one as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Imagine the imaginations. So it's 24 colors instead of 12 for that one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Did all the combinations and such hit the way you wanted to, or are there things that you would have changed in hindsight? Um, there's a couple of things that I would have changed for Bleecker Street. There was a couple of things that I, you know, had, I have some issues with now, but they're more operational issues related to sound. I didn't call for the ceiling, even though we do have soundproofing. Um, I wish I would have done those things, but, you know, our budgets were also quite limited. Uh, we've been a self-funded restaurant group since 2017. Uh, without, you know, real partners or, or investors. And that also poses its challenges. You know, I can only do so much with the money that we're, that we're able to foster from the other restaurants that are currently operating. That's interesting. That's a different, different uh, scenario than we've heard before, I believe. Self-funded since self 2017. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty that's amazing. amazing. What, um, you, so you mentioned this is your first time not taking a second generation space. Tell us a little bit about like some of the benefits and challenges that you've, ex you've experienced, you know, going from always taking a second generation space that maybe had some things that were already in place to having your blank canvas. You know, it is, it's two sides of the same coin, really. Um, in, you know, on one side of the coin, taking a second generation space is great because you are limited to some degree in how creative you can be. Um, I love working within constraints. Um, I like budget constraints. I like operational constraints. I always, there's always something really challenging in the restaurant spaces that I take that I have to navigate. And I kind of, you know, I, I enjoy having to deal with that. And so second generation restaurants are always fun for me because it's like, okay, you've been given this canvas. How creative can you get within these, you know, within, within this, these boundaries? Um, and I think that that's a lot of fun. It also is great when it comes to your budget. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits with not having to redo your plumbing or your electrical or having to install an HVAC. Uh, so you can really just focus on the cosmetic creativity within the space, um, building the identity of, of what it is that you're, you know, what it is you're building really. Um, 
And, you know, on the other side of the coin, it's a really fun thing to be able to decide from scratch, okay, the sky's the limit. If I could do anything I want, what would I do in this blank canvas? And so that's a fun, that's a, that's a fun experience because you kind of go wild. You know, if I could have anything in the world, this is what I would build. And then you start kind of whittling down from there in order to fit it within your budget um, while still, you know, while not sacrificing those, um, you know, those specific design elements that are incredibly important to the overall aesthetic and concept of the space. Um, so it's super fun being able to do whatever you want. And it's also super fun to be constrained, um, you know, by limitations that were set from a previous owner. I, I enjoy them both. <laughs> going forward, do you think you have a thesis of like, I, you know, perf- you, it's better for the budget to do second generation or I hundred percent prefer second generation restaurants. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Interesting to know. I mean, coming from somewhere, Alex and I were self-funded for the first nine years of our business for 10 years in, and you definitely make things work within a budget. So I'm curious because you have such like an amazing design aesthetic, what are your tips for people who are working within a budget and wondering where to spend, where to splurge or where to splurge, where to save? Um, you know, if you're, if you've, you know, done all your inspections and everybody's checked all your plumbing and your power and you don't need to make any adjustments to that, which can eat up your budget quite quickly. And you really get to focus on, uh, creative design. I think it's important to, you know, put everything down, you know, you know, throw it all at the wall and then identify, I'm a very visual person. So like, even when I'm writing schedules, I'll still hand write them and then put them in because it's so important for me to see, you know, the overall, the overall picture. So, you know, I make, I do a design deck for every restaurant that I ever even look at, even before I decide to start negotiating the lease. You know, these are all of the aspects of design. These are all the color palettes I want to bring in. I like this kind of furniture. I want to do this sort of thing in the bathroom. Um, I've opened quite a few restaurants. Uh, Bleecker Street, I think, was my 19th opening. So I'm pretty familiar with how much things cost here and there. So, you know, once you throw everything at the wall, you pick two or three things that you know you're just not going to sacrifice. You know, like this is a huge priority. And then everything you kind of do your priorities list based on those top two items. You know, and usually the top two items that you choose are going to be two items that are going to drive your design design aesthetic, you know, in the largest way. So everything else needs to fit in with that anyways. Um, and then you have to decide, you know, what are the areas that you're you know, at the bottom end, you know, are you, are you willing to have polyester napkins instead of all cotton? Are you willing to, um, have metal straws or, you know, biodegradable straws for those that need them? Um, you have to kind of really, really hone in on the areas that you'd like to save money in so that you can really throw them towards those, those fun design components. And then the middle area is always the hardest area to figure out. <laughs> yeah. We have uh, it's the top so two hard. and bottom two from Bank Street. Uh, the top two at Bank Street um, was the bathroom painting, the mural in our bathroom, which is done by Juliana Lupicino out of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, she's a good friend of ours. She had done our bathroom at the Farradish in Savannah when we were opened there and we flew her up because I just, I wanted the bathroom to be a really, really special, insane place. I have this obsession with um, spending a lot of time and thought in places that are generally overlooked. 
I always feel that if I walk into a space and something that should have been overlooked was given a lot of thought, then I immediately think that they've been thoughtful in their entire process. You know, it's almost like a brain manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was certainly a priority for me. And then the Fortuny wallpaper, it's Wolf's fabric. It's hand printed, hand dyed silk fabric from Venice, Italy. Uh, my friend Mickey Riad owns the company and it's a it's a proprietary process that not one person except for him knows the entire process. And the fabric is just stunning, stunning. It is very expensive and installing it in the wall is also very expensive. Um, but I knew that I wanted small wall. (laughs) It's very small. The restaurant's very small. So I was lucky there. And those two things were kind of, um, you know, that's where I wanted everything to, to fit around. And then, the third thing was I bought this table, this 1972 Burlwood table on Cherish before I even signed the lease because I was like, I want all of the furniture to look like this table. And I was so afraid if I didn't buy it, I felt like I'm buying it was manifesting the, the <laughs> lease signing. So I bought the table and everything kind of just worked around those three, those three things. And it, it worked out quite well. Cool. And for our listeners, these are all on your website so you can actually see them for anybody that can't get into the restaurant you can see them what natalie's talking about and i think i see the table is in front of the collage wall is that the, the table, table with the silver sides yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the burlwood it's so beautiful i love Very it so cool. much <laughs> and it didn't <laughs> fit about? in the restaurant because i we had to knock down a couple of walls in the back when i took over the space <laughs> and so perfect, i didn't actually perfect. know the dimensions of the restaurant when i bought the table and so when we, the table was delivered i was like oh no it totally oh, does God. not fit which is why it's on a diagonal in the back of the room <laughs> <laughs> well you made it fit so yeah exactly it still works, works. What about bottom three? Were there anything? Were there things that you gave up? Um, I was not very concerned with the floor. Um, the wood floor that was there was, I think, from like three or four tenants ago, and um, it wasn't in great shape, and it certainly needed some work. Um, but I decided I was just going to paint the hardwood floor, and so we did this like blue stain, um, and it's like very, very, very bright. Well, bright blue for a floor. Um, but instead of spending money on redoing the floor and putting in tiling and stuff, which is what I wanted, I decided that that was not a priority and only spent, you know, a couple thousand dollars just restaining the entire thing. And so that was not a priority to me. And then replacing uh, the fixtures. Um, you know, fixtures can get kind of pricey and we, we decided not to replace any of the fixtures um, like in the restrooms, um, we didn't really replace like the, the door fixtures, which can end up being thousands of dollars at the end of the day. Um, the past fixtures, like the stuff behind the bar, we didn't really make any adjustments to that because I felt like if we had these certain touch points that people wouldn't really notice that I didn't spend a lot of money on those. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're spending all their time looking at the beautiful mural in the bathroom. Exactly. Oh, um, different, different topic, but separate question. I noticed that on your website and your bio, and I think you mentioned it earlier too, that you had, you felt like work, working in other restaurants before starting Strange Bird, that there were a lot of things that you felt like were missing. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those and how you've, you know, changed or, or implemented them into your hospitality group now? Um, so... When I started out, I, you know, I wanted to keep growing in operations and get more and more senior roles so that I could essentially have a a paid education and how to own a hospitality group. Um, 
And I tried to work for companies that always identified themselves as, you know, people first and really humble companies. And the I just realized the more companies I worked for that it was kind of all lies. Um, you know, that they had these large back offices that were sort of running everything, that they didn't really care about what was happening on the ground. There was a huge disconnect between um, the sort of like back office operation and the on the floor operation. Um, and that no matter how frequently they said or how many times they hired HR people to say it for them, uh, that the people came first, it, it, I never really actually saw it. You know, there was a lot of unkindness. There was a lot of horrible working environments, a lot of yelling, a lot of belittling. And it was pretty much every company that I've worked for in the past. Um, and I thought that was pretty ridiculous. Uh, we are in service of people. I mean, this is what we do for our jobs. Uh, and if we take being in service of people seriously, then that means being in service of those that work for us as well. Um, it even says like on my strange bird website, we're people in service of people, we're people working with people in service of people. And that's all it is at the end of the day. We're all, you know, we're, we spend a lot of hours together in very high stress, high emotional environments, trying to, you know, provide wonderful experiences so that we can sort of effectively change people's lives for two hours every day and make them forget about their cares and their worries and allow them to be happy. Um, and I, I just, for so many years of my career, you know, six, 17 years of my career, I felt that disconnect between the way they wanted us to treat the guest and the way that we were being treated. So we don't do that. Um, we are all very, I mean, my, my back office is uh, me and my director of operations and my assistant, <laughs> who does like all my graphic design for us. Um, and, you know, we're all on the floor. We we're all in our meetings together. We know all the guests. We know all of our staff's birthdays and their names and their kids and their families. Um, we, it took us three years to figure out how to provide employer paid health coverage for every single employee, all hourly employees. So we, you know, my director of operations and myself and our chef, um, who they are now both partners in the holding company and the hospitality group, Strange Bird, um, we are all willing collectively to forego net profit for ourselves in order to give it back to those that work with us. Because at the end of the day, everybody working with us is also sacrificing their time and their energy to make the company money. So everyone should benefit from it. You know, we have profit sharing for all of the managers. Um, we have 401ks with matching for every employee. We have you know, PTO, we close the restaurants for one week every year to make sure everybody gets some time off. We're only open five days a week at every restaurant because we feel if we can be profitable in five days a week, then people actually get some time off where they don't worry about getting a call that somebody called out or, you know, they need to cover a shift. So we're, we're really trying to do things differently and we're trying to do it without bringing other people on board who might not share the same vision. How do you screen for that when you're interviewing people to make sure that their vision aligned? I always feel like that sometimes is, is it's really hard to hire people, especially when there is a lot of job openings. I mean, everybody's talked about how it's so hard to hire right now, but then it's also hard to hire people for that vision and cultural alignment. So curious to hear what your philosophy is there. It's certainly become a larger challenge, but we have had a, less of a challenge than other operators because we... We do have a great reputation for the way that we treat our staff and, you know, how caring we are and what we offer, uh, which is helpful. And for the most part, we have very little turnover unless people are going to, you know, work at a job that they had wanted before or wanted daytime hours and we can't provide that. Um, generally, those are the reasons that people end up leaving the company. Um, so during, you know, during the interview process, as of late, 
it's, it's, as I said, it's been a little bit more challenging, but we, we, we ask a few questions that I have found always to be really helpful for me. Uh, my favorite question that I ask everybody is what their, if they had a favorite teacher or mentor throughout their life, um, and why was that person their favorite? And I always then, you know, put my example forth so that they kind of understand what it is that I'm asking. My fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Brewster, was like such an influence in my life. Um, she taught us about like galleons and pirate ships and all this stuff through, through games and really active learning and um, group work. And I responded so well to that. It was so easy to learn all of this history because it was actually just so engaging and so fun. And, you know, you look at me now, all of my training programs are all game-based. Like, literally, <laughs> we have, like, heads up for many descriptions. We do all sorts of fun stuff. So when I ask that question to people, I'm able to see, like, what they see as a priority in the way that they behave. Because generally, what you're inspired by is something that you want to portray in your day-to-day -day life. That question has always been a great indicator of, um, of like, who somebody is um, and their value system. Uh, with managers, uh, we we actually have a whole dating process where we invite them and a guest into our restaurants um, and for dinner on us, and then we just ask them to send us an email about their experience the following day. And what I have found is when I see what they see, what when I read what they feel as a priority from the guest experience, it's very easy for me to understand what their priorities are as a manager. Um, you know, if they say like the server was super kind and, you know, had a, you know, a wonderful demeanor and I really felt engaged, then I know that that is something that they're going to find important as a manager. And if they find, you know, if they single out how well a server did and how engaging they are, then generally they're going to care about providing a good space for that person and feel that that person is of value. Um, so those two things have been really helpful for us in the past several years. I love that. I love that you bring, I mean, the feedback from like the guest perspective for the manager, I think is so important. It's like your, your inside shopper and then just seeing how they analyze the experience. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. It's so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to use that one somehow. Um, awesome. Exciting news for restaurants. Bento Box and Clover have teamed up to provide even more technology for a better hospitality experience. With over 70% of diners researching restaurants online before they go in person, a strong digital presence is more important than ever. Bentobox's website, marketing tools, and commerce platform help restaurants get discovered online, make more money, and engage diners in person and virtually. And Clover's world-class POS and payment system streamlines daily operations for a totally seamless experience. With Bentobox and Clover working together, Restaurants now have an all-in-one solution that makes it easy to deliver better hospitality from the kitchen to tableside and beyond. Bento Box and Clover. The right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash better to learn more. That's getbento.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. All right, cool. Well, we like to do um, what we call our order fire. Um, which we ask 10 questions and just about the same amount of, of minutes where it's meant to be like rapid, you know, rapid fire that we sort of ask to everybody. Um, Al, you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, and this can be for either property. Favorite menu item? Oh, shoot. Uh, I'm going to say, <laughs> it's so hard. I wrote all the menus with our chef. Um, I'm going to say fondue. I love fondue. that. Yeah, fondue. I saw that on the menu and that is definitely a throwback that I'm Taste coming in experience. for. 
Is it for the taste, the experience, or is it like both? The like it's, sharing it's, it's definitely yeah. both. I mean, when I moved to New York, I used to go to Artisanal and you know get the oh. fondue with all my friends, and it's just it's one of those really beautiful communal experiences that's super delicious because it's cheese. Um, and I love communal dining and reasons for you to share things with people that you're dining with. How does the dishwasher feel about the fondue <laughs> on the menu? It's, it's a challenge. It's like a pain, it's a pain in the ass to clean those things, right? Well, Just a practical we, got question. These beautiful, <laughs> we got these really beautiful dance um, pots that are, um, you know, ceramic, ceramic covered. And they, they don't actually stick to it super badly because they're not regular fondue pots. Perfect. Love it. People first. <laughs> um, most ordered menu item? Our seafood tower and our crab rangoon dip. And those are, which which property is that at? Those are at Nassau both- Bank. We've only been open at Bleaker Street for about a month, so it's been fluctuating quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but our seafood towers are unique and beautiful and composed, but also fun. Um, and the crab rangoon dip is just effing delicious and it's crab rangoon dip. So it's like everybody orders it. Crab <laughs> and a dip. Yeah. Like, how can you not say yes? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Best, uh, food cost item. Ooh, that fluctuates, um, quite a bit based on how pricing has fluctuated as of late. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, what is going to be our best item right now? Hmm, that's tough. Well, actually, you know, probably our chicken dish at Bank Street um, and our risotto. The risotto has a great food cost. I wish our pasta did, but it's got sea urchin on it, so it doesn't really (laughs) help us out there. Yeah, Yeah. the the risotto's quite good. (laughs) Hmm. There you go. Um, Something that you're doing to make your business more sustainable, this could be in any sense of the word. So obviously sustainability is is important when it comes to the environment, um, but I I feel like sustainability when it comes to the staff is what is a huge priority for us. Um, and one of the things that I've longed to do, uh, that I think I've certainly spoken to, one of the things that I've longed to do is really make this um, a sustainable career option for people. You know, it used to be back in the day that you were a server because you were doing something else, but this is, you know, it's a good job. It's a good job to be a line cook who goes into a sous chef. It's a good job to um, be a server. And these are, these can be lifelong positions. And I feel like they have been treated as transient positions. So making restaurant work a sustainable career option for people in the long run is, um, is, is my priority. Providing health benefits uh, certainly goes towards that, providing, you know, if better pay rates goes towards that, a healthy work environment, um, all of those things go towards that. But at this point, what we really need is um, we need representation in order to pass legislation so that we actually have more money as operators to give back to the staff instead of being ripped off for our insurance and our mm-hmm. rent, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, our next question is about employees, but I think we've got that barely covered, so I'm going to skip over that. What's, what was your worst building or developing moment? And you can maybe rep, reference uh, Bleak Oh, well, there have been so many. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Orchard Townhouse is a 1912 space that the restaurant that we took over had been there for, you know, 15 years. So that came with a whole set of challenges. Um, but 
I think most recently what I can speak to is um, dealing with Con Ed for Nats on Bleaker. Um, our, <laughs> it's often it's the utility all. providers that we hear uh, about. It's like the utility. <laughs> Con Ed is, is the absolute worst. Mm-hmm. How'd they um, wrong you? Let's hear it. Yes. But our, our contractors had made an error trusting the plumber that they hired to submit all the paperwork properly. And I'm like very controlling when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I was the one that got to the bottom of the fact that they hadn't even submitted the request to turn the gas on. And we were opening in like two days. Um, so we, we finally like got through everything and submitted all the requests and made sure we did the pressure tests, et cetera, et cetera. But then the guy that needed to come and approve it was out of town on vacation. And there's nobody else in all of Con Ed that can come <laughs> and take care of it and the whole company. Um, so we opened without gas for the second time in the past, uh, four or three years. Um, and so that was a, that was a challenge. <laughs> oh my God. So what did you, you just didn't use anything that needed to cook with gas for the, you didn't like, did you have to change the menu for the opening weeks? We, we had a limited menu for the opening weeks. Um, much of it we prepped at Nats on Bank. Luckily we had another restaurant that we were able to do that. Um, if we didn't, we likely would have just had to wait to open. And then we had, you know, a couple of induction burners where we just cooked a couple of hot items and, and that's what we had. And then when the gas got turned on, Rose, like the line cooks and the, and the sous chefs were probably like dancing. I think, God. Oh my God. It was just, I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a lot of cheering. All right. Next one is your most influential role model within or outside the hospitality industry, which we also sort of already talked about, but I don't know if there's a different one besides the fifth grade teacher. Uh, well, my fifth grade teacher certainly is, is the most um, influential, but I, I'm sure, you know, there's there's a long list of people for for various, various reasons. Um, but I read Setting the Table by Danny Meyer very, very early on in my career as a server. Uh, and that, that kind of changed my ideology and, and what it meant to be in hospitality and what hospitality actually was. Um, I think he's done a lot of great things along the way. And when it comes to um, following someone's career in hospitality, his has been great to follow. And I continue to frequent all of his restaurants and always have wonderful experiences. Um, so that that always makes me uh, very, very happy. What is your uh, best business resource or advice? That can be a book, website, friend, podcast, whatever. Um, I think learning Excel is very important and there's quite a few, (laughs) there's quite a few Excel classes available. Um, I, I, you know, I follow all of these, you know, wonderful podcasts and all of these really great tools. Um, I have found, uh, frequently, um, that while they're providing wonderful advice, it's, it's oftentimes very broad and not, um, not really getting into the nitty gritty of it. So I, I think like taking an Excel class and making sure you really understand your P&Ls and how to affect change in your P&Ls is the best advice I could give anyone. Um, it is just so incredibly important, but then, you know, at, on the same, uh, at the same time, understanding how some training you do on the floor is going to actually affect that P&L and what the relationship is to the P&L from your floor service. Um, those are very, very, it's a very, very important tool. Um, and understanding financials is not something that a lot of restaurants, restaurant groups uh, seem to care about training their junior managers in. 
which is very sad because I don't know how anybody can be an exceptional operator without really understanding the financials of a business that has such a such a challenging profit margin. Um, so that is my advice. That's a great piece of advice and it's very practical. And I think like the, it's true. Um, the numbers piece is so important for everybody to understand. And we actually like a little fun fact, we have a, um, we have an episode called decoding the PNL that we recorded in our first season. And it actually is still our number one, most listened to episode. And I think for this very reason, cause people don't get it. Like people are looking for training on it. I am not surprised. We do PNL training for all of our managers every single month. Um, and it is just such a valuable tool so that they know the choices they make and how that affects things in the bottom line. And since they all profit share, they, they really want to learn it. And it's, it's exciting to see people get really engaged with that. I love that. Um, one thing you tell uh, a young chef about the path to ownership or a young um, hospitality person? Um, the path to ownership. Um, I think an important piece of advice and what always concerns me is that people, you know, operators or chefs that want to own their own space, uh, who've done well in the past while not owning, obviously in the past, like previously, um, take deals that are not in their favor. Um, you know, that they're really a partner coming in who is an investor or whatever that's coming in is, is really taking advantage of the blood, sweat, and tears that would go into creating a space, a restaurant or a bar space. Um, and so I think the most important thing is get a lawyer. You know, do not, do not take on any restaurant unless you have a lawyer on your side and unless your lawyer says that you are protected in that agreement. Um, because I've just seen so many people sign agreements where they're not protected just because they're excited about taking a space. There's always going to be another space. There's always going to be another deal. You know, not taking one because it's not going to benefit you is not going to jeopardize your career. Good advice. That's great advice. Yeah. You, yeah. Can't back out of deals once you've signed, once no. the, once the ink is dry. No. Um, what is your why? This is the last one. Why did you choose to open a restaurant or in an entire hospitality group and many, many restaurants? Um, generally when I get asked this, I start to cry a little bit. So, I'm trying not to cry. Um, as I had said earlier, it is, um, you know, we are in a unique position where people entrust us with their time, where they, they let go of the outside world and allow us to create a world for them where they don't have to worry about things. And that, I'm so sorry, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a huge responsibility. You know, you get to kind of, you get to actually change somebody's life for two hours of their day. And their life for the two hours that they're in your hands, um, it's a huge responsibility, but it, it can have a, an enormous effect on them. Some of the most important experiences in my life have been, you know, after a bad day, meeting a friend at a restaurant or a bar, and, you know, you just forget all your worries. And you're like, okay, well, I feel better now. You know, this, this space like that was created for me to enjoy, I was really able to actually enjoy myself. Um, and so I'm really driven by, by people being able to be transformed when they're in space and not have to worry about anything else. I love that. That's the magic of restaurants right there. Um, it really is. Well, 
This has been so much fun chatting with you, um, learning so much about your thoughtful approach to hospitality and how you're running your restaurant group. And I think our audience will really love it and resonate with it. Um, we like to wrap up with opening soon announcements. So it sounds like you have one coming. I heard something about Nat's Mountain House. Yes, uh, that will not be until 2023. Um, okay. Which is only four so months away. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be in the spring. Um, it, it's Nat's Mountain House in Tannersville in the Catskills. Um, on the same road as Hunter Mountain. Um, and, you know, the idea behind that is it's it's really a place for people that live there or are coming there to sort of do anything at any time. We don't want people to feel pressure to have to spend $100 on dinner. We'd rather somebody feel like they can come and watch a concert in the backyard and have a cup of coffee and, and just have it, you know, be a meeting place, which is why we call it the Mountain House. It's, you know, come and go as you please and enjoy what we have to offer. There's always going to be something going on. <laughs> Like a hotel lobby without the hotel. I love exactly, it. Exactly, because I don't like running rooms at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other beast. Um, oh, yeah. Awesome. You want to tell, you want to wrap us up, Al? Sure. Uh, thanks again for being on the show. We're super excited to hear about uh, everything that's going on. Can you tell us, um, give us the lowdown on where people find you on social and online? Uh, yes, so at Strangebird Hospitality or strangebirdhospitality.com. And then the restaurants under our group right now are at Nats on Bank, at Nats on Bleecker, at the Orchard Townhouse, and at Nats Mountain House. Cool. And we are at Tillet NYC and at We Are Opening Soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nat. We'll come and see you so soon. Much. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.